0: team. Hey, good morning. If you've got a Bible, you can go with me to to Romans chapter 3. And we are going to be in a number of places in the Scriptures this morning. And so um, you can either kind of prepare your fingers and make them nimble, uh, or you can also uh, look up to the screens. We'll have the the text up there as well. But Romans 3 is where we'll start. So we began last week a series uh, called The Power of the Cross in preparation for Good Friday and Easter we are reflecting on uh, the work of Jesus at the cross, wanting to understand it more fully and kind of dive deeper into it. And I'll just encourage you in a couple ways. I mean, the reason we do that is uh, in, you know, the church calendar is meant to be a really helpful and useful thing to you. I don't mean the calendar of our sermon planning. I just mean that the church historically has followed rhythms throughout the year, uh, like the rhythm of Advent, where we think about the incarnation of the Son of God come to save us and then in Lent as we prepare, you know, for Good Friday and leading up to the cross, the reason to take time and pause and reflect is that uh, on those entities, not just to remember what was done, but because almost like, you know, uh, F-18s get slung, shot off a carrier, you know, in the ocean to launch, that these seasons are really meant to launch and propel our faith forward. They're meant to be these moments that we seize and take hold of so that we treasure Jesus more, so that we grow in obedience to him. And that's really what we're after is we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and for Easter with this series of a couple weeks. We've said that our application every week is that we would treasure Christ and his work on the cross more. Now, if you're a part of a life group, and I would highly encourage every single one of you to be a part of one because it's where we try to live out and apply God's word together. And we need to do that together, not just individually. Uh, so one of the questions I asked you last week to ponder in your life group is, why as Christians do we need to learn to treasure the cross more? And the thing that we talked about in our group, the reality is that we need to learn to treasure the cross not just because it's the place where we're justified, the place where we receive salvation in believing in the work of Jesus on the cross, we are saved, but also it becomes our ethic for life, the thing around which we revolve the entirety of our life. So far too often in the world, and sometimes you treat it as if it's a modern world problem, but it's been a, it's been a pre-modern and, and modern and post-modern world problem uh, that we are prone to attach faith and attach Jesus on top of a life that we design to our own liking. That's just the normal course of human history. And yet Jesus demands and calls us to place him at the center of life. He says, I want your faith to not just be one more thing you add to a life of your own design that you kind of like, and you say, this enhances it, I want you to revolve everything around it. I want everything to be born out of it. I want you to understand that life cannot be full of joy and blessedness unless it starts with me, unless I'm at the center of that thing. And if Jesus is at the center of our life, and the pinnacle work of Christ is his cross, then the cross must always be at the center of our lives, which is what I mean when I say it's the ethic by which we live. The cross is what helps us make sense of what is moral and good. The cross is the lens through which we view all of our decisions. Does this decision I'm about to make, does this thought that's in my mind, does this feeling in my heart, is it a cross shaped thought? Is it a cross shaped feeling? Does it reflect the very nature of the cross? Is it humble? Is it sacrificial? Does it seek the glory of God above all things? This is what it means for the cross to be the ethic by which we live our lives. Does that make sense? It's not an easy ethic by which to live. So when I ask that question of you in your life groups, the thing I was hoping you might see and discuss a little bit is to say, unless I treasure the cross, unless I really see it for what it is and treasure what it accomplished and see its power and its supernaturalness, unless I see that, I'm not going to treasure it because I do not by nature treasure sacrifice. I do not by nature treasure treasure, humility, and want to be humble. I do not by nature want to love my enemy. I am by nature against those things, and therefore unless I learn and in the power of the Spirit treasure the cross, I won't take it up as the ethic by which I live. It's much more than just justification. It's the working out of faith. It's the growing in Christ's likeness, and the cross is central to that. Does this make sense? That's why we're about the work we're about now in these weeks. Now, last week we talked about Jesus doing a substitutionary work at the cross for us, that there was a penalty, penalty of death that was due to us because of our sin, and that he took our place in paying it. And the cross he hung on, I should have been there, and he took my place. I intentionally did not talk uh, in more detail about the nature of that penalty in depth, because that's what we're going to talk about today. And so it's a weighty subject. We are talking about the cross as a propitiatory work, as a work of propitiation. And I'll explain that to us. It's not as intimidating as it sounds. Uh, but I don't have silly illustrations for you. I don't have fun stories. Uh, we are going to deal with a subject of deep weight today. And so I just want to, I want you to almost just in this moment, invite the Lord, prepare my heart to receive it and to hear it. Because um, it's not light, but it is necessary. And so as we think about the cross as a place where Jesus bore the wrath of God, that that was actually the nature of what was taking place and the penalty uh, that was being born it was the wrath of God for sin and sinners falling upon Jesus and the cross. And I wanna help us understand that more. So we're just gonna do a couple things, trying to answer a couple questions today. Uh, we're gonna just say, what is propitiation? So let's just get that intimidating word out of the way and help make it plain. So what is that? The scripture... There's more references to it than you think uh, in the Bible. So we're going to talk about that. What is it? Then I want to ask, I want to linger a little while in asking the question, why is it that God has wrath towards sin and sinners? Why is that the case? Might we think of him as, you know, sort of flying off the handle and angry and capricious? And I want to help us understand that a little bit more because it's a natural question to ask. Some of you have, have pondered that, I'm sure. And then we'll talk about what it is it that we need to understand about the cross that will help us treasure it more as a place where Jesus bore the wrath of God. And then the simple question that we always want to ask is, what should we do? <laughs> How should we respond in understanding this? So those are our four questions today to give us a bit of a roadmap. So let's start with that first one which is what is propitiation? What is it? All right, so to propitiate, it can be a noun or a verb, right? So if I say uh, Jesus is a propitiation, I'm saying that he is something, that's a noun. If I say he propitiates, let's start with the verb. Here's what that means. To propitiate is to appease someone's anger, to appease someone's anger and turn it into favor. Now, the second part's really important, okay? It's to appease someone's anger and turn it into favor, whether it's appease their anger towards me, appease their anger towards someone else. That's what it means to propitiate. So a very simple definition of Jesus being our propitiation is that he was our wrath-bearing object. So listen to the scriptures. Uh, Romans 3.25 says, speaking about Jesus and that he justifies us by faith through the cross, it says, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So there's a way in which we receive him as this thing, as this wrath-bearing object, bearing the wrath of God, we receive it by faith. So he can be that for us if we believe in him. Then 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's gonna become a key text for applying this Idea today, but just stay there for a moment. So we see this idea with him as a propitiation. So here's what these verses are saying. At the cross, God poured out all of his hatred of sin on Jesus. At the cross, one of the things that was taking place, he was conquering sin and death and the devil, he was serving as our substitute, he was reconciling us to the Father. But all of that was accomplished because he bore the wrath of God the hatred and anger of God towards all that is evil and wicked and contrary to God's very nature. Jesus took the punishment for that at the cross. Now, that's what it means to be a propitiation. The best illustration I can give you is if you imagine, you know, when you walk outside in the rain, you put up an umbrella to shield yourself from the rain, right? So if you think about that, that Jesus is like an umbrella, that he is shielding you from what is coming down, which is not rain, but the wrath of God. And it's directed at you, but Jesus serves as that wrath-bearing object, that umbrella to cover you, and all who would believe in him are coming underneath his protection from that wrath being poured out. But that's an incomplete illustration because to be a propitiation doesn't just mean he shields us from wrath, it means he turns that wrath into favor. So if you can now, to complete that analogy, just imagine for a moment that you're holding that umbrella over yourself, and you are scarred and beaten by sin, and your body is completely pulverized because sin destroys and kills. Do we know this? We've got the scars to prove it, don't we? And so you've got all these open wounds, and you've put this umbrella of Jesus up, and you said, I believe, and so you've taken him as your propitiation, your wrath-bearing object, but now the wrath of God, that rain, comes down upon that umbrella and it doesn't just roll off of it. It goes through it and the umbrella of Christ transforms it into a healing balm so that what now comes through the umbrella and does land upon you doesn't just shield off and go away, but what comes down now is that rain of wrath is transformed into anointing oil and it comes upon you and it heals And restores and makes whole because Christ, as your propitiation, has transformed the wrath of God into blessing and into favor. I hope that picture helps you. That's what it means for Christ to be our propitiation. Now, let's go to the second question Why is God full of wrath towards sin and towards sinners? Why? Because you might have conjured up in your mind a picture of a God as just sort of flying off the handle and always angry. You might have a picture that he just sort of reacts. That is not what the wrath of God is like. So let me help us understand it. And I just wanna make some observations. These are gonna be born out of that Romans 3 passage. But let's start with this. And Romans 3 helps us understand it, okay? Okay. God, the first observation is God's hatred of sin comes from the fact that he is perfectly righteous and he is perfectly just. So when we say God is perfectly righteous, we mean he is without fault, without sin, he is perfectly pure, he is holy. Therefore, all that is sinful, he despises. Now, he is just, we say he is righteous, which means he is completely pure. He is just in his personhood, which means that To be just, he must punish then that which is contrary to him. He must punish what is evil and what is wicked. Now, let's pause there for a moment and read Romans 3 because it tells us why. It gives us the reason. this is crucial. We're gonna talk about why this is the answer to this question. So in Romans 3, 25 and 26, he says this. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness. So do you see he's giving us the reason there? Why did he put him forward as a wrath-bearing object? To show his righteousness, God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, not just in the past, but at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now, let me tell you what he's just said. And let me make one caveat here. I said that God's anger, hatred towards sin is is directed towards sin and sinners. And the reason I said not just sin is because I don't want you to think of sin as an immaterial thing that God will punish apart from punishing those in whom sin inhabits. We are culpable for our sin. Therefore, God's wrath is directed at us, not just as some immaterial idea that he's gonna eradicate sin as this non-entity or as this non-material entity without somehow causing that wrath to fall upon those in whom sin has taken up residence. That his wrath is in fact directed at people in whom sin exists. That's important that we comprehend that. Now listen to what he's just said there. What Paul is telling to us in God's inerrant word is that the reason that God's Wrath is poured out upon sin. The reason Jesus came to be our propitiation, our wrath-bearing object, is because in his divine patience, God had not punished sins in the past prior to Christ. It says in his forbearance, he didn't punish them. And someone might have said, God, how can you let these kinds of evils go? How can you do nothing about them? You have done nothing about them, therefore you are not righteous. Therefore you are not just because you've done nothing about them. And so Paul writes, in order to show his righteousness and in order to show that he is just, God poured his wrath upon Jesus to show that sin must be punished. And therefore, he revealed that he is in fact righteous and just. He would not, no, reverse that. He would not be righteous and he would not be just if he did not judge sin if he did not judge evil. Now, this is a very common idea, even in Greek philosophy, where there's a very different idea of, the God, of God and the gods, right? So in Greek philosophy, this question got bounced around all the time. So you get the Stoics who say things like, uh, we want God to be, and we're going to declare that, that God or the gods are loving but not angry. That They possess love and sort of generosity, but they don't possess anger, or God himself does not possess anger. Epicureans respond, it's not possible for God to be one and not the other. You cannot have, God cannot have love without also having anger for that which is evil. And the argument is for the Epicureans, because it is the nature of that which is good to hate what is evil. And it is the nature of what is evil to hate what is good. And we sort of resonate with that, don't we? There's something in us that tells, yes, evil hates good. Have we seen that? And good hates hates evil. It is by nature. Now, here's where we part ways, okay, with the Greeks or the philosophers, because the Epicureans' conclusion was, therefore, God is neither angry nor loving. That was their conclusion, right? But recognize that the Epicureans and the Stoics and every other school of thought, which the early church fathers dealt with and spoke to, and their response was to say, no, Epicureans, he is both loving and full of wrath, like he is both just and loving, he's both these things. So we agree that he can't be one and not the other, but the answer is not to say he's neither, the answer is to say he's both. Now here's why, where we part ways, because what the Greek philosophers were doing was they were taking an objective standard or idea of what it meant to be good, what it meant to be just, what it meant to be righteous, and saying God needs to live up to this. God needs to live up to that, that standard Therefore, he can't be one without the other. But we are very different because we do not say there is some standard outside of God to which he must adhere in order to be just and in order to be loving. What do we say? That God himself defines what is just and what is loving. And this is where the doctrine of revelation is crucial, not the book of revelation, the doctrine of revelation. We only know anything about God because he chooses to reveal it to us apart from his revelatory work in creation and in the word of God, we wouldn't know anything about God. We would be left at a mystery. We would not be able to comprehend anything about him. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. And in his graciousness, he reveals things to us. So when I say, God would not be just and God would not be righteous if he did not exercise wrath on what is evil, on what is sinful. If he didn't do that, he wouldn't be just and righteous. I don't say it because there's a standard to which God must adhere. If I believe that, then who is setting that standard, him or me? Me. And if he has to live up to what I believe, like the Greeks, is the standard of righteousness and justice, then God's gonna look a lot like who? Me. I'm gonna shape him in my own image. But the reason we can say that God would not be just if he did not punish sin is because he has told us that. He has revealed it to us about, he has said himself, I would not be just if I did not punish sin. And therefore we can declare that to be true because God has made it the standard. Does that make sense? It's highly important that we understand that because we are not putting God on trial here. My goal today is not to justify God to you being who he is. God is completely comfortable in his own sin and he doesn't need me to make you comfortable with him. He is not interested in me standing up here and saying, don't you see, don't you see it's okay that God is this way. And therefore, I'm not interested in doing that for you. What I am interested in doing is helping us see who God has told us he is, who he's revealed himself to be whatever he said about himself, that's what we want to know. That's what we want to understand. Does that make sense? So that's what God is telling us about himself. In order to be just, I must punish sin. It's in my very divine nature. So that's observation number one. Let me make another observation then. We can't play good cop, old co- uh, good cop bad cop with the Old Testament and New Testament. So sometimes we'll get in this way of thinking. One, it it does violence to the scriptures. But number two, uh, what happens sometimes is you've heard this before. Well, God in the Old Testament seems really violent, but God in the New Testament seems like he's full of love and and it seems like almost two different beings. That's just a misreading of the New Testament. I need to help you see that here for a moment, okay? So God is not changed. He is immutable. He never shifts and changes. The New Testament itself doesn't speak that way. So let me just give you a couple of examples, right? John three thirty six. this is John the Baptist talking, and he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son through belief shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 118 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth in Revelation chapter five, verses one through five. Do you guys recall we've sung that song by Andrew Peterson, Is He Worthy? It's a call and response song, it's a beautiful song. It's based in Revelation chapter five. Sometimes we might miss something there and I wanna maybe clue us in on it a little bit. That that song is born out of this text where what's happening in the heavens at the end of all time in Jesus' return is that there is this scroll that's uh, handed down from the Father and it's got seven seals on it. And no one is found worthy to open that scroll, to, to take the seals off and to open it. And so there's distress among the heavenly beings. There's this like, who is worthy? Because the scroll is God's purposes going forward in the world. And so they want to see God's work go forward. And they're distraught because it seems that no one can, can make it go forward. And then the lamb who was slain, Jesus, is, comes on the scene And they begin to praise him and say, because he was slain, he's able to open up the scroll. He's able to take the seals off the scroll and open the scroll. But if you keep reading, do you know what happens in the rest of chapter five and in chapter six? He opens the scroll and what he opens is the judgment of God so that death and pestilence and famine and sword come forth on the earth. What Jesus is praised for in that moment is enabling God's judgment on sin to come about. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter five. In Revelation chapter six, we find these words uh, in verse 16. Listen to this. It says that the people are calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face, face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So whose wrath is it there? It's Jesus' wrath, not just the Father's. Now look at First Thessalonians, last one on this observation. First Thessalonians 1:10. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, he says, "And to wait he says, we're waiting for God's Son, for His Son, from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come." Do you see? Bring those two together now. The wrath of the lamb, Jesus is both the one who will be part of God's demonstration of judgment against all sin and wickedness and the eradication of it. He is also the one who shields and saves from that wrath for all who will come underneath his work at the cross. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So do we see that we can't play good cop, bad cop? Old Testament, New Testament, the wrath of God is pretty prevalent actually in the New Testament. Now, let me make a third observation. His wrath is not capricious and it's not um, arbitrary. So, when we talk about the wrath of God, it is not a reactionary wrath. It is not anger and flying off the handle. I mean, you and I have all had moments where we boil over in anger, where we get so tired and so frustrated that we just simply say enough and we react, yes? And our anger comes out. And it's usually pretty unrighteous when that happens. So we think about God that way, but we need to stop because God is not that way in his anger. He is not reactionary or boiling over in a moment. He is constant in his exercise of justice and righteousness towards sin and also constant in his love. Look at Exodus 34. This is the best place I can show you this. And yeah, it's hard, but, but just listen Exodus 34, six and seven, speaking to Moses and revealing himself to Moses now on the mountain. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So here's what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, hear that, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. That word steadfast love in the Hebrews, the word hesed, we do not have an equivalent translation in English. Steadfast love doesn't come close. It is this idea of a never stopping, never giving up, never ending, constantly faithful, always there, perfectly righteous, perfectly pure. And the the adjectives have to go on and on and on and on to comprehend what that word means when we say that's the kind of love that he has. bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now listen, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Father's God, he says about himself, "I forgive. I forgive. I forgive sin, I forgive iniquity, I forgive trespasses." But what, what now is the next thing that he says? But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I I know that raises a question about like generational impact of sin and there is a distinction under the new covenant versus the old covenant of the way sin is is brought forth, right? There's a little bit more individualization there. I'm, I'm not gonna go into all that today, okay? What I want you to see is that in one breath, in one sentence, When the Father reveals himself to us, what does he say? I forgive, I'm full of steadfast love. And then the very next thing is, but I don't clear the guilty. What he's saying about himself is, I and I alone know how to perfectly judge sin as it should be judged. And I and I alone know how to perfectly forgive. I am in perfect union these things. You are not, I am not, but he is. So he doesn't shy away. Do you see, he could have just stopped at the end. He didn't have to go into the but I don't clear the guilty, but he's saying, no, no, I am just, and I am forgiving, and I am merciful, and I am full of love. And so when we think about him, I want you to see that he knows how to bring these things together in such a way that's beyond our comprehension. He's not a fly-off-the-handle, reactionary kind of God in his anger Here's another observation. And I know we're lingering here, but it's such weighty stuff that I just am intentionally wanting to do this. His wrath makes his love more than mere sentimentality. If God were to say to us, I love you, but that love wasn't a wrath-bearing, saving kind of love, it would really just be God saying, if he he couldn't be directed towards us in any other way, do you see that his love is just a sentiment? It's just a feeling. It's It's just sort of like fluffy and kind of makes us feel good, but what makes his love concrete, what makes it so substantial, is that he says, I could be directed towards you in wrath, but I'm directed towards you now in love because of Jesus. The fact that he is, that that's a possibility, makes his love more than mere sentimentality. That's some of what the Greek philosophers are getting at when they're saying he can't be one and not the other, and those sorts of things. Now, let me ask this question, because um, we need to ask it of ourselves. Have you ever considered, if, as you're thinking about, like, well, why does God possess this? How else would you want him to be directed towards sin? How else would you want him to be directed towards sin? So let's go over the options, right? The options are, he can love sin. Does anybody want that? No, we intuitively, no. we don't want him to love genocide. We don't want him to love racism. We don't want him to love murder. We don't want him to wink at those things or say, I take pleasure in those things. We don't. So if that's not an option, we don't want him to be indifferent towards it either, I would suggest, right, which would turn his justice into mere sentimentality because he would say, I don't love those things, but I'm not going to do anything about them. I'm gonna leave them undealt with. That goes back to the Romans three, in order to show that he's righteous, in order to show that he's just. He had passed over those sins, but now he poured them out upon his son at the cross. So we don't want him to be indifferent towards them because then that makes his justice just sentimentality. And we're left particularly when we're the one against whom sin has been done, when we're the one against whom injustice has been brought, we cry out for justice, for him to hate that injustice or that sin. So the other option would be like, we want him to hate it, but not judge it, right? And again, that would turn justice into sentimentality. So it's not what we're looking for. So it helps us to understand that the cross as a place of wrath, it gives his justice and his love real meaning and real weight. Now, okay. Sometimes I write things down. I'm like, I don't know if I need to do that. Well, I'll just quickly hit this and then we'll move on to the next, okay? Um, Intuitively, all of us have been angry and often we recognize that our anger is unrighteous. Right, yes? Yeah. But my guess is you would also recognize that there are times you've been angry and you know you were right to be angry. No one actually believes their anger is always wrong. Because at times, something is done, something is said, and you recognize that. No, that's wrong. And the fact that I'm angry about that and angry at that is right for me to feel. Now think about what that means. If you believe that there is such a thing as anger that you've experienced and that was right for you to feel, what you're saying is it's possible for anger to be holy, which means that you're saying that that anger is a result of the fact that you bear God's image. It comes from him. Your anger that you feel and experience when it's righteous is because that's who God is. So therefore, why would I recognize in myself something that's right for me to feel at points? Often, sometimes I fail to be righteous in my anger. But if I can recognize such a thing as righteous anger in myself, then I am by definition saying that comes from God. It's part of my image bearing of him. And if that's true, why would I say he shouldn't have something that I recognize is right to have in myself when he's the only one who can always exercise it perfectly perfectly? The last thing I'll say is this, often you'll get in, if you get into any of these kinds of conversations, perhaps you have friends that really wrestle with this. And one of the things that they may offer you or suggest is that believing in God, pouring out his wrath upon Jesus at the cross, isn't it prone to make us a violent people? Where we go, well, if God is sort of violent in that way, maybe it's okay for us to be violent in that way too. And I just wanna tell you, man, just nothing could be further from the truth. Because the fact that we believe that God has poured his wrath upon his son makes us peacemakers not violent people, because what does Romans 12 say? Romans 12 tells us, leave it to me. Don't take vengeance yourself. When injustice or sin is done against you, how is it that you cannot be violent in response to that? You cannot be violent because you know that God will judge it one day. And the penalty for that will either fall upon Jesus, for the person who repents and comes underneath his shelter, or it will fall upon them. And therefore the Lord says, do not take revenge, but wait patiently. Show mercy, love your enemies. Be a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. How do you do that? It's believing the wrath of God, the propitiatory work of Jesus happened is a huge part of how we become people who are not violent, but the exact opposite. We don't have to take up arms ourselves because he has done it and we'll do it. All right. I hope that helps us just a bit. And again, we're not seeking to justify God being how he is. We are simply seeing to help understand it as he's revealed it. Now, let me get to the, the, if that was to some degree kind of, we're trying to soak that up in our minds, this next part, we need to soak up in our hearts. Okay. I mean, keep your mind on. All right let's ask the third question, which is what do we need to understand about Jesus bearing God's wrath on the cross in order to treasure it more? Well, turn with me to Matthew 27, verse 46. It's the story being told of Jesus on the cross. And I just wanna look at one set of words that he speaks and help you understand it more fully. So in Matthew 27, actually I'll begin in verse 45 and verse 46. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, my guess is those words might be familiar to you, but you may not be as familiar with the idea that he's quoting Psalm 22 there. And so understanding Psalm 22 helps us understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. So we hear that, and we hear this idea that God has turned his face away from Jesus, and that's correct, that he has allowed a separation to occur between him and the Son in a way that had never occurred through all of eternity past, that Jesus had always been in perfect fellowship with the Father, always in perfect union with him, and in this moment now, there's a separation between the two as God turns his face away. But what Jesus is doing is he's quoting Psalm 22. That's the opening line of Psalm 22. But the psalm goes on, and as you follow it, by the end of the psalm, he's saying at the beginning, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why aren't you delivering me? That's kind of the first half. And in the second half, he says, you now have rescued me. You have redeemed me. You will be praised among the congregation for what you've done in lifting me up and raising me up, the psalmist said. In this prophetic messianic psalm, here's what Jesus is saying. In that moment on the cross, Jesus knows Psalm 22. He is not just saying, God, where have you gone? He's saying, how much longer will this go on? Because he knows that just like at the end of the Psalm, he will be rescued. He will be raised up. He will be resurrected. The Father is not going to forsake him or leave him forever. The Father is going to glorify him. The Father is going to vindicate him. And he knows that. So what is he saying? He's saying how much longer must I endure this? And why is he saying that? Because moment by moment, Jesus wasn't just dying a physical death. The wrath of God for all the sins of the past, the present, and the future of those who would be redeemed was being poured out upon him. He was enduring absolute anguish, not because of physical Pain, but because the wrath of God in all its fullness, in all its judgment, every ounce of hatred towards all the sin and wickedness of the world was falling upon him. And he had to keep enduring it. Why was Jesus' death so violent and so lengthy? Why not just say he needed to pay the penalty of death, therefore he died, and that was it in a moment? Why not end it quickly? Because Jesus had to stay on the cross until the last drop of God's wrath was poured out. So that all who would come underneath his shelter would never say, well, there's more that wasn't endured. There's more wrath yet to come that Jesus has not taken. Therefore, Jesus says, after the land has been darkened and after he's cried out, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? What does he say right before he gives up his life? It is finished. There's nothing left to be born. In his spirit, Jesus knew in that moment the last drop of the wrath of God had fallen upon him. He had absorbed it all for all who would be redeemed through all of time. That's what was happening on the cross. The wrath of God, moment by moment, hour by hour, not for 5 minutes, not for 10 minutes, for hour after hour after hour. Hebrews 2:17 says therefore He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, Jesus had to become human in order to pay our penalty. He had to face temptation, hunger, loneliness, all of it, so that he might become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, Jesus is not just the sacrifice being offered. He's the one offering the sacrifice. As the high priest, he came and became human in order to be the perfect high priest. And the high priest is the one who makes the offering. But he didn't just make the offering. He became the offering. He became the wrath-bearing object. He became the propitiation. When he says he was a merciful and faithful high priest, what he's saying is he was merciful towards you and me in that he chose to make himself the sacrifice so that you and I could receive mercy. That was his heart towards you and towards me, full of mercy. He was a faithful high priest in that he made the perfect offering. There was nothing lacking in his offering. So he was faithful to God as a high priest in offering exactly what was required, everything that was necessary. And he was merciful towards us in offering himself. That's Hebrews two seventeen, First 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So here's John, and he's saying to his people, he said, look, I I don't want you to keep sinning. Like day in, day out, I want your lives to look holy. I want them to be righteous. I don't want you to be obedient. He says, but if anyone does sin, because he's a realist, right, you're gonna sin. So if anyone does sin, when you do sin, we might even say, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then what does he say? He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation. So you didn't know it showed up this much in the Bible, did you? This idea of propitiation, it's everywhere. And so what's he saying? What's he saying there? On a day-to-day basis, the fact that he was, bore the wrath of God on the cross has opened the way for him to be our advocate before the Father now. So that when you struggle with sin and you're fighting against it and you're saying, help, deliver me. I, I don't wanna keep walking in these ways. Who is on your, who's on your team? Who's advocating for you before the Father? The devil's accusing and the son is advocating. And he is saying, Father, you do not need to pour wrath upon them. You've poured it on me and they've come underneath me. It's done. It's finished. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy and they fall on deaf ears because the son is advocating and it's the fact that he was our propitiation that enables him now to be our advocate. Do you see that? It's not just a he did it then, praise God, he bore it and now it's done. It has consequence for you today when you go home and pray. When you're fighting against sin, remember that he is your advocate and he is your advocate because he bore the wrath of God for you. Last text, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. We already read verse 10, but look at how it completes in verse 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Now, that's a very famous verse. It's very popular. I have it like on a bathroom wall in my house, and it stops there. In this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son. I think, I think It ends there. I'm gonna go scribble it with a marker on it later on today. The rest of the verse. (laughs) Amanda might not love it, but off theological grounds. In this, don't don't try to trump your spouse that way. That's not gonna help you. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, don't stop there, to be the what? propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see what they're saying? Is the reason you know what God's love is like, the expression, the great expression of his love is his propitiation, is his wrath-bearing work. The fact that he wasn't just a substitute bearing some kind of idea of a penalty. The fact that it was absolutely the wrath of God being poured upon him is the reason you and I can experience love today. The reason we know what it is, the reason we can define it accurately is because we know what it is that he took God's wrath for my sin. And when I understand that, I understand what love is like. Now, how should I respond? And let me just offer a few quick thoughts in these. I am gonna be very quick with these. How should I respond? Number one is I would just urge you, because some of you are not followers of Jesus, you've not given yourself to Christ, and I would just urge you, come underneath the shelter of Jesus. Just please, please, please come underneath the shelter of Jesus. You cannot bear the wrath of God for your own sin. You are not sufficient payment which is why it will go on for eternity. If you choose to endure it, you will have to endure it beyond time and beyond space. Please, He offers you shelter. great expression of the love of God, that he loves you, is that he has sent his son so that if you would come underneath him, if you would say, I need you, I trust you, I believe in you, he will save you. He will be your shelter and he will turn the wrath of God into blessing and favor. He will heal you. And he will make you whole. I don't know what prevents you from believing that, but I'm urging you to see it. I'm imploring you to receive it. The wrath of God is fearsome, but the love of God is great. For those of you who have come underneath the shelter that Jesus provides from the wrath of God, hate your sin. Hate it. Despise it. Want nothing more to do with it. Do not think of it as light. See the price that was paid and hate it and forsake it and battle it and call upon the Spirit to empower you to love righteousness and to hate evil and to hate wickedness. Forsake your sin. Be confident because you will never be the object of God's wrath ever again. When you sin today, God's wrath will not fall upon you. His disciplinary hand will come, but as a loving father, you, having come underneath Christ's propitiatory work, will never bear the wrath of God ever again. There is no piece of that wrath still left to be appeased. It has been completely appeased Romans chapter five, verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Do you hear what that's saying? Be confident. Go to God with confidence. You don't have to go anymore quaking and shaking, wondering if his wrath will be poured out upon you because the son has taken it. you can approach God, this is miraculous, you can approach God with confidence that all that will be directed towards you is love. Any discipline is from love. Any correction is from love, not from wrath. The last thing, Last observation is what we saw in 1 John 4, 11. What did he say? The great expression of his love is his propitiatory work, his wrath-bearing work. And then he says, so let us love one another. So love each other sacrificially. You can't bear the wrath of God for another person, nor can I. No one can do that. Only Jesus can do it. But we can love sacrificially. We can love our enemies. We can love with humility and grace, and endurance, and patience. We can mirror and reflect the love of Jesus in his work of propitiation when we love with sacrifice, and we love with commitment, and faithfulness, and steadfastness. So let us love one another that way. That's what John is saying there. Not just, he did this so we should love. He's saying, he did this so your love should look like his love. Let your love look like his love. As I said at the outset, those are some applications, but our great application is that we would treasure the cross, is that you in these days leading up to Easter, I I hope that this has helped you have a fuller understanding of what was taking place at the cross, yes? A deeper valuing of it and a treasuring of it. The work that was done there was supernatural and unending and absolutely astounding, and I pray that you'd have eyes to see it and treasure it. Let's pray together. Jesus, you astound us. Everything about you is without flaw, and we want to treasure you. It is hard for us, we admit, to ponder the wrath that was due to us being poured upon you We feel weighty even as we try to ponder that. And we should. Don't let us feel lightly about that price. But Jesus, help us to help us to believe that it was complete and full and that you chose it. And the Father chose it. But teach us to respond rightly. Yeah. Lord, as we, we're going to sing to you now. And um, some of us may need to just sit and be quiet. And that's okay. Um, guide us if that's the case. The rest of us, we're going, to, we're going to sing and we pray that we would sing from hearts that are treasuring you and astounded by you and that it would be a full-throated praise to you now that it would please you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and conclude with our song of praise.